You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we have a bumper education offering for you. Later on, Maywell Chu, our practice editor, finds out about new guidelines from NICE on treating children with autism. We must ensure, in line, interestingly, with legislation, that people with autism should have proper access to good health and social care and that they should have good access to the right care for their autism. But first, Mabel talks to the author of one of our Rational Imaging articles about how to investigate stable chest pain. I have with me Declan O'Regan, who's a consultant radiologist at the MRC Clinical Sciences Centre in London. Declan's here to discuss with us how best to investigate stable chest pain when you suspect a cardiac origin. Declan, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Hi. Now, um, we know that there's a whole battery of cardiac imaging now available to clinicians, and um, it would be helpful to know who would benefit most from these sorts of imaging. When the recent NICE guidelines came out and no longer recommended the use of stress testing or exercise ECGs in investigating stable chest pain, um, they did instead recommend other sorts of tests and it would be helpful to talk about what these are. So um, if a patient were to come with come to me in the surgery with some sort of story of chest pain that wasn't changing terribly much and had been going on and off for the last few weeks, how should I assess them first up? So the NICE guidelines have um, really tried to make this into a much more straightforward logical process for investigating patients who present um, in those sorts of situations. And what it does is it bases the investigations on the patient's pre-test probability of having coronary artery disease. So it will stratify patients according to their their risk. If the risk is very low, if it's less than 10%, you can make a clinical diagnosis of excluding it. And similarly, if it's very high, over 90%, again, you can assume that they have stable coronary artery disease and uh, manage them for stable angina. The patients in between, um, so uh, the ones at more intermediate risk, NICE recommend um, a a series of imaging investigations that is determined by their pretest risk. And that risk can be calculated in the the surgery based on their age, their gender, risk factors, ECG findings, and so on. Okay, let's take the risk groups that you've mentioned one by one. Um, In the case, for instance, of a a low-risk patient, what would you do? So if you calculate their pre-test risk of, um, it comes to between 10 and 29%, then the first-line test is a calcium score. So this is a, a, a relatively straightforward Uh, CT, there's no contrast medium needed, there's no heart rate control needed, and we're looking for calcified coronary artery disease. Now, if it's zero, that really effectively rules out there being obstructive coronary artery disease in those patients. And it also has a really good uh, prognostic uh, factor as well. So the uh, cardiac event rate is really only about 2% 
over the next five years if you have a, a zero calcium score. If you do discover calcified disease there, uh, it's only an indirect marker of um, whether or not there are actual stenoses. So you need to proceed to an anatomical test. So if the calcium score is raised, if it's between 1 and 400, you'll then proceed straight on to do a contrast-enhanced CT. And you can do that on the same day. Is there any heart rate control required with that? So typically there is. So the majority of patients will need cardioselective beta blockers to lower their heart rate. Typically 60 to 65 beats per minute is satisfactory. Most patients are given sublingual GTN as well for uh, vasodilatation, so the coronary arteries appear a little larger on the, uh, on the scan. So this can potentially be a problem in patients who have asthma um, or have heart failure. But in many patients, we'll get them on the table. We can give them intravenous beta blockers. They act very quickly over the next five minutes or so, and we can get on and do the scan. Um, and it's a straightforward, rapid procedure. Okay, and presumably one would need to make sure that one takes a drug history and that they're not taking uh, Viagra. Yes, most centres will have a checklist and you can look for contraindications to both GTN and the beta blockers. Let's move on to the patient with a moderate risk of a cardiac problem. So the NICE guidelines recommend if the risk is between 30 to 60%, then we choose a functional imaging test. So, so generally, they will have a pharmacological agent administered to identify whether there is flow-limiting coronary disease. Now, there are two main approaches for doing this. There is perfusion imaging and wall motion imaging, and they work in slightly different ways. In perfusion imaging, the patient's given a vasodilator, typically, such as adenosine, and that increases the difference in perfusion between uh, myocardium supplied by a healthy coronary artery and myocardium supplied by a stenosed coronary artery. And that can be done in typically two ways. We can either do myocardial perfusion scintigraphy to show that difference in perfusion. And there, um, we uh, typically adenosine or dipyridamol can be given. Uh, and the patient's given a, a tracer, which is taken up by the uh, cardiac myocytes and imaged with a gamma camera. Alternatively, um, we can use cardiac magnetic resonance. So we can do a cardiac MR study. We give the patient uh, an infusion of a vasodilator, the same sort of drugs. And during that infusion, we'll inject a bolus of contrast and look at the first pass perfusion within the heart. And we can very clearly see then if there is a perfusion defect in the territory of the stenosed coronary artery. Alternatively, another approach is wall motion imaging. So typically, uh, dibutamine will be given, which is a sympathomimetic drug. And if there is, uh, this will induce a wall motion abnormality within ischemic myocardium. So it will increase the force of contraction in the heart rate. Uh, and if there is muscle supplied by a diseased artery, then there'll be a wall motion abnormality develop. And you can look at that either with echocardiography or again with cardiac MR. Dibutamine has some potential side effects. Um, so rarely you can get sustained ventricular tachycardia and it's not appropriate in people who have limited outflow, such as severe aortic stenosis or obstructive cardiomyopathy. 
similarly, adenosine isn't suitable for patients with severe asthma. Okay, so to summarise what you've so helpfully discussed thus far, if I think the patient in front of me in my consulting room has a low pretest probability of coronary heart disease, then the first step would be to go for some sort of anatomical imaging. And for the patient with a higher and a moderate risk of uh, cardiac disease, the next step there is functional rather than anatomical imaging. Does that sound a reasonable summary? Yes, that's right. Good. So let's move on now to people who have a much higher pretest risk of cardiac problems. So if the risk, if you calculate on the tables, the risk is between 61 and 90% of having coronary artery disease. And you would consider the patient for revascularization then you can offer the patient uh, an invasive coronary angiogram. Classically, this has been considered the gold standard for looking at the lumen of the coronary arteries. Uh, And the patient, of course, may proceed to coronary stenting to relieve some of their anginal symptoms uh, if a, a suitable stenosis is identified. Okay, so it can be um, interventional as well as an investigative uh, procedure. That's right, exactly. So do exercise ECGs have any role these days in investigating stable chest pain? Well, the the NICE guidelines um, are quite clear that exercise ECG isn't recommended for patients without known coronary artery disease. So that's really been quite a a shift in, uh, in practice where exercise ECG had a much greater role in identifying patients who present with these symptoms who may or may not have coronary artery disease. So non-invasive imaging now has a a much greater role um, in identifying and screening patients uh, who who are suspected of having coronary artery disease. And for listeners who are interested in more detail, your article in the BMJ, of course, outlines uh, all this in a little more detail and gives some very useful pictures to demonstrate what you're talking about. Declan, thank you so much for this useful summary of the various imaging techniques available for people in whom one suspects pain of cardiac origin. And as Mabel said, that article is online and will be appearing in print soon. Now, NICE has issued new guidelines on the treatment of children with autism. Mabel Chew again. I have with me Professor Tim Kendall, who's a consultant psychiatrist and oversaw the formulation of NICE guidelines on the management of autism in children and young people. Tim, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Tim, you're here to talk to us about how children and young people with autism can be better managed. And we know that autism has an enormous impact on both the children and young people it affects, but also um, the people around them. And it's certainly an important cause of disability lifelong. Before we start discussing management, what are the the key clinical features, if you like, of autism so that we we at least know what we're talking about? There are two main areas. One is children with autism have social communication difficulties that 
disrupt interpersonal relationships. Um, for example, um, in, in more extreme uh, circumstances, that they may be unaware uh, that someone's looking at them. And it's really very, very handicapping. Um, I mean, just thinking about how important it is that you can tell that someone else is looking at you. Now, um, I think that leads to people to be uh, people with autism to be quite isolated. Second area is that they tend to um, engage in very repetitive behaviours and have very narrow interests. Commonly, the repetitive behaviours might be like drumming out a beat again and again and again, shaking their head again and again and again. Now, it's often pretty disturbing for people to see, and I think um, it's been a source of controversy as to how you should actually manage that, but it's, it often produces a very anxious reaction in people around them. So those two things, very repetitive behaviours, rather narrow interests, and social communication difficulties. Because you know, obviously lots of kids might have one of those things, but having both is very typical. You mentioned in, in your BMJ summary of the NICE guidelines that part of the impetus to developing guidelines was the difficulty that families report in, in getting a diagnosis in the first place and then getting access to services and interventions that work. Let's start out talking about what the NICE guidelines recommend about access and the services available. Well, first of all, is and, and this was very, very apparent from working with the carers on the, on the guideline group, they don't want their children to be denied access to any form of health or social care. Um, at the moment, um, that unfortunately is the case, is that people with autism may have difficulty accessing ordinary health services. So I think the first key issue that the guideline group dealt with was we must ensure in line interestingly with legislation that people with autism should have proper access to good health and social care and that they should have good access to the right care for their autism. Right and your article also mentions the role of um, multidisciplinary teams. Would you like to elaborate on those, what, what they should comprise? Well, basically, if you think about um, uh, a child with autism, um, they've, they, they not only have the core features, but they also have uh, a range of associated problems much more commonly than other people do. So, uh, for example, quite commonly will have uh, gastrointestinal problems. They will have very significant disturbance with sleep. The local autism team really needs to have the full range of expertise that, that all children with autism um, are going to ha have to varying degrees. Um, so it should have a paediatrician, they should have access to psychiatric care, they should have uh, access to speech and language therapy. Um, but I think the key thing to this is that the team doesn't have to provide it all, but they do have to be able to ensure that parents of children with autism can get access to the right treatments. Well, that's a very interesting point and, and the point you made previously that 
children with autism should be able to access healthcare in whatever setting, um, then leads us to the next question. When they do access healthcare of whatever sort, um, what are the basics that, that general healthcare professionals um, ought to know and, and uh, all the core competences, if you like, that general healthcare professionals ought to have? Well, one is that they really do need to understand autism. If you're going to provide uh, any of the sorts of uh, therapeutic inputs um, or social care um, or educational inputs for children with autism, you need to understand what autism is about. And there are very, very simple examples. Lots of kids with, kids with autism find it quite difficult being in, in, um, in places like waiting rooms. So it's being able to adjust your ordinary healthcare approach to account for the fact that a child's got autism. And what might be some simple environmental measures that we could do? Well, for example, if, if a GP is, go, is going to see a, a child with autism, uh, they'll come with their parents and it's probably best that they, ca that they arrange to come right at the end of the clinic when there's no one left in the waiting room. And that when they do see them, that they make sure that they've got enough time to see them because with, you know, particularly if they've got significant speech problems, you may not be able to talk to them that easily. So it's going to take longer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, moving on to specific interventions then, uh, we know and we hear about lots of families who understandably go to great lengths to seek out specific interventions that um, might improve their child's behaviour or, or um, interactions. What interventions do we know actually work and are recommended by NICE? We looked at a, a broad range of interventions and as you rightly say, um, there, are a, 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 there are a great deal of, uh, of probably very well-meaning health care professionals around the world who have claimed and championed a particular form of intervention. And our view was that there, there is no cure for autism um, and that we need to be completely candid that, uh, that autism is a lifelong condition, uh, almost certainly involves um, uh, hardwiring changes or brain changes. Um, so we haven't gone out and said, look, there are specific treatments with the exception of one area, which is that... Um, Social communication interventions, and, and we're not 100% sure exactly which, but those social communication interventions are probably um, helpful in improving communication with the child um, and between the child and their carers. And what do you mean by social communication interventions? Well, generally, they involve uh, things like sort of play-based strategies, which include the parents or carers um, and sometimes the teacher. Um, and their aim is to sort of to increase joint attention. So, you, you know, you get them playing together and in the play get them both to focus on, on similar things. So it's to promote engagement and to support reciprocal communication. That's very interesting. The other important um, item in the summary you've produced for the BMJ is the specific recommendation against particular interventions. Would, 
Would you like to discuss those? Well, again, there's been an awful lot of, of interventions suggested for kids with autism. So, uh, and, and it's, to, to be honest, it's with children with lots of neurodevelopmental problems, including hyperactivity and, and so on. But in autism in particular, they've done dietary interventions such as chelation therapy, which takes certain uh, dietary constituents out of your diet, um, or giving them uh, you know, a, a additional um, input. Now, all we've done is said that, that, that you know, these things need to be avoided. Okay, and the reason for that being? Uh, because there, we found absolutely no evidence that there were uh, of any use. Exclusion diets, for example. Um, Gluten-free diets have been tried. Casein-free diets, so no milk. Um, when we looked at these, the, the evidence for their effectiveness, absolutely none. Now, there are other things that, that we've we looked at. So um, people have tried a range of drug treatments, for example, for the core features of autism. So antipsychotics have been used, antidepressants have been used, anticonvulsants have been used. Um, and we found absolutely no evidence that they have any impact on those core features. Um, obviously, if a child with autism becomes depressed, then we'd want them to follow the NICE guideline on depression in children. And that might include, um, at some point, offering fluoxetine. Um, but we wouldn't want people to use fluoxetine or any other antidepressant to treat the core features of autism. So are there any other therapies that we should avoid in, in managing people with autism? Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, there, that the evidence for neurofeedback uh, to manage speak and, speech and language problems or omega-3 fatty acids to ma manage uh, sleep problems, auditory integration, um, there's no evidence that these are effective in, in, in this context. Um, but probably the more um, areas where we're absolutely certain shouldn't be used in any context should never be using hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We should never be using chelation therapy and never be using secretin, all of which have been championed at one time or another. Absolutely. That sounds very sensible. Now, uh, another aspect of, of autism is the fact that kids with autism often display behaviour that can be quite challenging. Uh, what are the recommendations for, for handling such behaviour? First of all, um, the behaviour needs to be anticipated. Children with autism, largely as a result of those two core areas, because of repetitive behaviours which often people find disturbing, and because of the difficulty in, in, in their communication, it's not uncommon that, uh, that the child is misunderstood and they can become very frustrated. Now, children with autism find change incredibly difficult. So if you're going to introduce change, so changing schools, moving bedrooms, um, you know, relatively simple things, even going on a journey, may produce bad reactions. So being aware of those uh, important issues is a, a key.
And presumably one also needs to consider possible social factors such as the possibility of abuse or exploitation or bullying by other people. I think that's, um, that's a very, very good point. And that's, you know, accepting the fact that parents must be at times greatly challenged by looking after a child with particularly severe autism. Um, the, the idea is not to go on a witch hunt against parents, but it is making sure that you keep an eye on the safety of the child. And hand in hand with that is, is ensuring that families and carers are assessed with regards to their own needs, including the, the amount of support they have. Terribly important. In, in producing this guideline, meeting parents and carers of people with autism, it becomes very apparent that not only is it very hard um, in terms of looking after your child, it's very hard getting the right support and services for the child. And in terms of getting support and therapeutic input if it's needed for the parents, that's even harder. Um, and, and yet they're a very needy group of people, without doubt. Mm. Now, uh, just in the final few moments, I was interested to note in the NICE guidelines the mention of sleep problems and interventions for those, um, as I wasn't as aware perhaps as I could have been about how, how great a problem that can be for people with autism. Would you like to discuss the interventions very Yes. Um, I should say, when we first drew up the guidelines and put them out for consultation, we had only a very small section on the management of sleep. Um, and that was partly uh, because uh, we looked at different interventions, uh, including melatonin, um, and we found insufficient evidence for us to be able to recommend them. Um, now, when I say insufficient evidence, I mean that there's one decent-sized trial on melatonin, and there's one trial of melatonin when other uh, attempts at, at, at sleep interventions have failed. So those two on their own, addressing slightly different populations, we thought was insufficient to make any recommendations. So when it went for consultation, about a third of all the the, the consultees made it very plain that sleep was one of the major issues that, that, and that we couldn't really just ignore this. So the guideline group did a further piece of work um, supported by us um, to come up with really what are um, consensus-based recommendations. Um, and they are fairly, they're fairly common sense, um, but you know, thankfully done by people who at least have a regular daily contact with children with autism. So it was, there are things like, um, you know, looking at their sleep pattern, trying to regularize their sleep. So uh, lots of kids with autism uh, tend to stay up late. Um, they find it difficult getting to sleep. That means that the following day they're very tired and they tend to get day-night reversal. So the first thing is to establish what their pattern is like and how regular it is. Um, and then look at things like the environment. Um, you know, are they exposed to a lot of background noise? Um, do they, are, they, are they able to exclude light? Um, do they have computers in their, in, in, in their bedroom? You know, some, some children with 
autism, particularly higher functioning autism, um, do get, because of their, 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 their attraction to very narrow interests, become um, uh, very, very focused on, on computer games uh, and find it difficult to stop. Another area is to increase their levels of daytime activity, not into the evening, but during the day. It seems to, um, our experts seem to think that that has a, a significant effect. Um, and to look at effects of medication that they might be taking for coexisting conditions, that sometimes they may produce problems. A proportion of children uh, with autism also have hyperactivity. So if they're being treated with methylphenidate, that's going to worsen the problem for sleep. So all of those things, and then it was to look at um, trying to get the parents and child to get into a regular pattern. And, um, and I, you know, that's no small uh, feat. I think it's quite a difficult thing to do. Um, and to monitor it and to provide support for the parents, um, if you are doing the full range of things that we recommend in the guideline and that's failed, then our view is that you should, you should refer to a specialist who deals with sleep. So there are pediatricians, for example, who deal with sleep specifically. And I, I have little doubt that at that point, you know, um, apart from behavioral interventions, that they may well think of, of pharmacological interventions. But unfortunately, the guideline couldn't say what that should be. Mm. Well, Tim, that's been a, a very useful uh, discussion of the problems and practicalities facing children and young people with autism and their families. So thanks for your time today. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.